Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. BP, Deloitte, Reebok, the list goes on. Hundreds of global companies have left or suspended operations in Russia since it invaded Ukraine. The list also includes Stanley Black & Decker, headquartered in Connecticut. That's according to researchers at the Yale School of Management and Chief Executive Leadership Institute. This week, the Associated Press reported Farmington-based Otis Elevator is reevaluating its future in Russia. After Otis said in March it would not take new elevator and escalator orders in Russia and would not make new investments in the country. Today, where we live, are financial penalties by corporations effective and what are the wider consequences? It may be too early to tell if these dramatic hits to the Russian economy will lead Putin to end the war in Ukraine, but history has shown when companies stand up against governments for moral reasons, like confronting apartheid in South Africa, change can happen. Consumers, what's your take on corporate social responsibility? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joins us on Zoom, Stephen Tien, Research Director at Yale School of Management's Chief Executive Leadership Institute. Stephen, welcome to our show. Lucy, thanks for having me. It's great to be on today. I mentioned uh, this great list, the data that's been compiled uh, by you and your team. So tell us about the activism you're seeing from Connecticut companies specifically. What's the latest from your list? Well, Lucy, that's right. And your introduction does such a good job of capturing what we've done that I'll keep my comments pretty brief here. Uh, When the invasion of Ukraine started overnight on February 24th, Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld at the Yale School of Management and I started keeping a list of the companies that withdrew from Russia. And what we saw was immediately off the bat, we had roughly around a dozen companies withdraw from Russia. And as the invasion continued, and as our list uh, grew more popular, we saw a rush to the exits. Our list of a dozen grew from a dozen to a hundred to 200. And now we're tracking over a thousand companies from all around the world and 750 companies have withdrawn. It's really an unprecedented historic corporate exodus from Russia. And we're really proud of the role that our list has had catalyzing that. So I mentioned Otis Elevator. I know there's also Subway, the WWE, and there's Booking, the travel company that have all suspended operations. What more can you tell us about the other Connecticut companies on your list? Lucy, that's exactly right. Uh, Our list tracks uh, around uh, a dozen Connecticut companies and it ranges across the spectrum. We have some companies that have withdrawn completely from Russia, Stanley Black and Decker, which uh, historically draws 150, do- 150 million in revenue from Russia has withdrawn. Like you pointed out, Lucy, Booking and WWE have also withdrawn. Those are some of the A-rated companies. We have some B-rated companies such as Xerox who have suspended operations. But on the other end of the spectrum, you also have some Connecticut companies who largely remain in Russia and continuing business as usual. We have Subway, 
which, you know, headquartered right down the street in Milford, which has a D rating right now. We have um, AstraZeneca, which owns Alexion, which is, you know, based right here in New Haven, Connecticut, where we are here at the Yale School of Management. Um, and we also have PMI, which also maintains the D rating and which also is maintaining sales in Russia. So you have really a, a wide range and spectrum uh, of Connecticut companies on our list. The data is important, but when you think about this exodus, is it entirely due to ethics or is this move more to de-risk from geopolitical instability, Stephen? Oh, Lucy, it's a combination of factors. It's impossible to you know pinpoint any one specific driver for each of these companies. When we talk with corporate executives, it's obviously a combination of all of the above. On one hand, executives understand the black and white moral dimensions of this issue. You look at public polling. Morning Consult did a poll recently, which shows 80% of Americans support companies withdrawing from Russia. And that's 80% of Americans across the ideological spectrum, across demographics. That's, you know, an unheard of number for any issue that's being polled right now. So that's the moral dimension of the issue. It's black and white. But on the other hand, like you pointed out, Lucy, there's all kinds of supply chain issues. There's all kinds of uh, what the investor base is asking for. There's all kinds of you know issues regarding fixed investment on the ground in terms of intensive capital expenditures, factories, employees. So it's a combination of a lot of complex issues. But executives are having to balance all of that. And they understand at the end of the day, the black and white moral dimensions of the issue as well. And we'll be getting more into the factors that you just laid out for us, uh, Stephen. And, uh, you know, corporate actions for moral reasons definitely garners our attention. Uh, just last week, we had former Pepsi CEO Indra Nui on Where We Live. And I wanted to share what she told us when PepsiCo reduced water usage in drought-prone communities where it was operating. You've got to look at all of these sustainability uh, initiatives, not as a... Uh, just a social good that you're doing that doesn't have any shareholder value creation associated with it. But you've got to look at it by saying, hey, if I did these things, I'm actually de-risking the company. And Nui further told us that PepsiCo failed to de-risk. The corporation could have been shut down and its license to operate could have been revoked. And so when we think about what companies are now doing in Russia, creating shareholder value by de-risking, Stephen? Lucy, uh, the Indra Nui clip that we just played captures the essence of what we're finding exactly. And in fact, Lucy, uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld and I just published a Washington Post editorial last night, which proves exactly what we're saying here. In our editorial, we show that the companies that rate highly on our list, the A and B companies, actually have outperformed the stocks of companies that rate lowly on our list ever since the invasion began. And it goes to show uh, exactly what we're saying here. The global reputational risk of these companies remaining in Russia and the global consumer boycotts that they're having to face far outweigh the financial costs of actually exiting from Russia. You've seen so many headlines, Lucy, around the costs of exiting, whether it's in terms of the lost revenue or whether in terms of, you know, uh, investments that they're having to give up or in terms of assets they're having to write down. But the reality is, Lucy, uh, Russian revenue consists of a very small percentage of revenue for most of these global multinational corporations, no less than no, no more than one or two percent. And the reputational risk that they're incurring by staying actually far outweighs the revenue and the assets they're having to write down in terms of their Russian exposure. So in terms of what Indra was saying, uh, 
That's exactly it. What we're seeing from companies when we talk with chief executives and what we're seeing across the map with these 750 companies that have withdrawn is that this is an issue where doing good is not antithetical to doing well. And we're seeing that chief executives are looking to de-risk their company and looking to you know, wipe themselves of exposure to Russia as fast as they can. But at the same time, it's obviously a moral issue of black and white. So it really goes to show that you can hit a sweet spot here where you can do well for your shareholders, but you can do good ethically and morally at the same time. Stephen, we started talking about uh, Connecticut companies that have made the decision to uh, suspend uh, operations in Russia. And so when we look at New Britain toolmaker Stanley Black and, and Decker, and we're talking about stock performance of companies that have exited, we know uh, Stanley, the largest tool company in the world. Uh, tell us more about you know how it's performing. Well, that's right. And Lucy, you know, Stanley Black and Decker deserves a big shout out for their commendable leadership on this front. They draw $150 million in revenue from Russia. Uh, it's a relatively uh, minor component of sales, but they moved decisively and swiftly without looking back. As soon as the invasion began, uh, they made the announcement that they are exiting Russian operations and that they're suspending Russian sales. Uh, and, and they deserve, you know, a big shout out for that. If you look at their stock, SWK, maybe don't look now because actually they just came out with earnings. So you're seeing a little bit of noise surrounding that. <laughs> but that's why when Jeff and I took a look at stock performance, we actually took a cutoff date of April 8th intentionally to weed out some of the earnings reports that we're now getting from Q1, because um, with the earnings reports, stocks are now moving based on those idiosyncratic factors, as opposed to the Russia-Ukraine invasion. And what we saw with SWK, I mean, and this is true across the map, uh, to a lesser degree for SWK, but the stock has actually done relatively well since the invasion. Um, and we're seeing that across the map, obviously with sample size, uh, when we're taking Connecticut companies alone, it's such a small sample size that the trend doesn't hold up um, as perfectly as we do when we see the 1,000 uh, company sample size across the map because you have some idiosyncratic moves. But it, it does hold true across geography and across sector and uh, across market cap segments. And it really is a universal trend as, as far as what we're seeing. And what about Xerox? I understand it exited partially. That's right. Xerox suspended all sales in Russia, but you still have some legacy exposure remaining in Russia, which is why they're rated a B on our list for suspension of operations as opposed to an A for withdrawal, uh, which is where Stanley Black and Decker is and which is where Booking and WWE also are. Uh, Xerox stock has done relatively well since the invasion as well. They're up slightly through the period that we were examining them. Again, another case where they just came out with earnings last week. So you're seeing some idiosyncratic moves now. But if you do a cutoff date of April 8th, you'll see that Xerox stock is also um, up slightly ever since the invasion began. You're hearing Stephen Tian here on Where We Live. He's research director at Yale School of Management's Chief Executive Leadership Institute. As we take a look at corporate social responsibility, the number of companies uh, that have left Russia or are suspending operations or thinking about it since its invasion of Ukraine, uh, we wanted to find out you know, when there are financial penalties by corporations, are they effective? What are the wider consequences? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Twitter at where we live. You know, I mentioned uh, apartheid, and this is something uh, that you and Professor Sonnenfeld had also written in the New York Times earlier this month, uh, looking at precedents uh, when companies stand up uh, to governments over moral reasons. So tell us a little bit about that. Give us more context. Lucy, I'm so glad you brought this up because the historical context is really important to understanding what we're seeing right now and why this matters and why consumers at an individual level are so important. Just to bring us back to South Africa in the 1980s for a quick history lesson. In South Africa, what we saw was 200 multinational corporations start to withdraw from the country in the mid-1980s. And this helped catalyze a massive movement. This helped catalyze not just global consumer boycotts, but this helped catalyze uh, a very devastating sanctions package in 1986 um, that was passed with bipartisan support during the Reagan administration years. This helped catalyze the fall of the P.W. Botha government in South Africa, and we saw that that regime was replaced with the de Klerk regime, which made great strides in helping end apartheid South Africa. And none of this would have happened, Lucy, without companies helping catalyze the response there at certain levels. I mean, you have to draw the attention of you know an authoritarian government, I mean, you have to pressure that authoritarian government to make steps in the right direction. Sometimes it really takes a unified movement by these leading global corporations to get their attention. And that's what we saw in South Africa, and that's what we're hopefully seeing again in Russia play out once more. When we think about shareholders, even customers, Stephen, you know, how much of a voice do they have in driving these exits? Lucy, that's the billion dollar question. And our answer is a ton. And I think our next guest might disagree with that. And I'm looking forward to that conversation. But based on all what, what we're seeing right now, Lucy, this movement of 750 companies out of Russia, it is a true bottom-up grassroots movement. There's been no top-down coordination. There's been no you know, dictatorial executive orders coming from the government. Our list is looking at companies that voluntarily exceed the bare minimum required by international law. We give companies zero credit for just you know, adhering to U.S. sanctions. And what we're seeing, Lucy, is because of the global consumer boycotts, because of what companies are hearing from their own customer base, from their suppliers, from their clients, from their shareholders, customers are being catalyzed to make the right decision and withdraw from Russia because they understand this is what consumers are asking of them. This is what their investors are asking for them. And this is a true bottom-up movement. They are being responsive to global consumers like the listeners of our show who've been writing to these companies. And that is where the impact is. That is what has catalyzed this movement. That is why individuals, you know, taking action, individuals taking this power and uh seeing what's going on and writing to these companies have had such a large impact. It really is a bottom-up movement. and It's been inspiring to see individuals take that power into their own hands. Given what you shared, uh, the consumers, uh, the people that have been writing these companies, are they also behind you know, the, the push to, to, to um, compile this data that you and your team have worked on? Oh, Lucy, absolutely. In fact, we've been hearing, uh, this is one of the great things about our list that very few people understand. We have a team of 
three dozen experts here at Yale who are tracking these companies closely. But that doesn't begin to capture the entire story because, Lucy, actually, the secret behind our list is we get tips coming in, hundreds of tips coming in every single day, whether it's consumers who, who are still doing business with these companies, whether it's uh, clients who, who understand that some of these companies have Russian exposure, whether it's shareholders who are looking, who are diving into the, uh, the financial documents, the annual reports of these companies. We even have internal whistleblowers from these companies themselves. And these are some pretty senior whistleblowers. These are executives in positions to know that these companies might have, you know, uh, little known subsidiaries that are doing business in Russia or some longstanding partnerships in Russia that aren't available in the public domain. But we get hundreds of these tips in every single day, Lucy. And our list is so extensive. Nobody else can track uh, the number of companies that we've tracked because we're receiving so many of these tips every day. And again, this just goes to show how individuals really are in the uh, are in the power seat here. Lucy, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without individuals taking the power into their own hands. And obviously, these companies wouldn't have withdrawn so fast without consumers reaching out to them and letting them know that this issue is so important to them. And it's really been inspiring to see how you know individuals have been really able to impact this at the highest levels. We're going to share that uh, list with our listeners. We're going to tweet it out at Where We Live and also put it on our website, ctpublic.org slash Where We Live. We're talking with Stephen Tian, Research Director at Yale School of Management's Chief Executive Leadership Institute, talking today about corporate social responsibility in the wake of uh, global companies pulling out or limiting ties to Russia after its invasion and war in Ukraine. Uh, we're going to continue talking with Stephen after the break and also hear some perspective on how environmental, social, and governance, or ESG funds perform. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hundreds of companies have exited Russia or limited its involvement there as a result of Putin's war in Ukraine. Stephen Tian is with us. He's research director at Yale School of Management's Chief Executive Leadership Institute. The institute compiled data on hundreds of companies, including in Connecticut, with this goal, quote, every corporation with a presence in Russia must publicly commit 
to a total cessation of business there. Russians who rely on the food or medicine these companies make or jobs they provide may suffer hardship. But if that's what it takes to stop Mr. Putin from killing innocent Ukrainians, that's what businesses must do. And in a recent Washington Post op-ed, Tian and its team say companies that have exited Russia are not only accruing substantial costs, they're also showing financial benefits. And those that refuse to leave are experiencing the greatest costs. Uh, Stephen, I wanted to talk with you about some of the quotes that, that, that I just uh, read. Uh, some may really see this as extreme, but you and your team believe it's necessary. Lucy, that's exactly right. We have feedback come in where people say, this is really an extreme position. Do companies really have to cease all operations in Russia? And the answer is, well, Lucy, this is one step short of bombs and bullets. What we're trying to prevent is World War III from breaking out. That could be very devastating. It could be a potential nuclear Armageddon situation. And what we have to understand is we're at the doorstep of that situation. Uh, you know, as much as we would like for all companies to be able to continue providing baby food and, and, and you know, a, a, a Nesquik and, and Oreo chocolates in Russia, unfortunately, extreme times call for extreme measures. And when we look at what's going on, the murder of thousands of innocent civilians in Ukraine, uh, the Putin regime, which is, you know, violating all norms of international law. And uh, you see the headlines now. They've cut off gas to Poland. They're looking at an invasion of Moldova, broadening the invasion, not just to the east of Ukraine, but also other uh, neighboring European countries. We have to understand the, the macro backdrop with rising great power competition and uh, with the norms that Putin has shown he's repeatedly uh, flaunting time and time again, whether it's 2014 with Crimea, whether it's with 2016 election subversion, and now we have to understand what we're dealing with. And ultimately, these companies, by remaining in Russia, they are continuing to fund the Putin regime. They're continuing to prop up Russian civil society. And at this point, uh, stalling out Russian civil society is our best hope for averting that bloody conflict, which would lead to millions of casualties, which would lead to the decimation of uh, a civil society as we know it. And we have to understand the consequences there. So Lucy, our answer is an emphatic yes. Companies have to withdraw from Russia. They have to stop all operations because, again, uh, it's one step short of bombs and bullets. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. And I want to talk specifically about uh, state of Connecticut leaders now. Uh, Connecticut's uh, $47 billion pension fund holds Russian domiciled investments worth uh, more than $218 million. That's an equity and fixed income per the latest valuation. Now, State Treasurer Sean Wooden directed to, to divest public funds from Russian-owned assets. He said in a statement from March, Russia's actions have created a fiscal and humanitarian crisis that puts the global markets at risk. This action today is a necessary step towards protecting the long-term viability of our investments globally. So, Stephen, beyond Russia, where else have pension funds and investors been vocal? We talked a little bit about historical precedents. Uh, what about uh, American clothing? companies sourcing from Bangladesh. What came of that? Uh, well, Lucy, 
pension funds have been a very important player in this situation. And, and you know, Treasurer Wooden came out the first week of the invasion and writing off $200 million of exposure for a $47 billion fund. It's not massive exposure, but it's symbolically important because ultimately you look at who holds public equities here in the United States. Institutional investors own 80% of the market capitalization of U.S. stock markets. So when institutional investors move, that sends a signal that filters down, whether it's towards C-suites at the company level, whether it's across other uh, investors, whether it's you know university endowments or private wealth advisory funds, or even retail, retail individual investors. It is a powerful message and pension funds and institutional investors have moved very quickly here, along with other financial service firms, such as index providers. And you look at the impact that they've had. It's unprecedented. Lucy, you mentioned where are other examples that they've moved. You do have some examples where they've moved. Uh, some of these institutional investors have been very strong on environmental issues. Some of them have been very strong on the issue of not sourcing cotton from uh, you know, Uyghur forced labor in Xinjiang in China. But there are also issues where these institutional investors haven't moved, especially on the S of ESG, on the social issues. Where were these institutional investors when it came to, you know, uh, protecting election integrity? Where it came to, you know, protecting democracy after the 2020 elections? Where were they on voting rights? Uh, those are very valid questions. And it's safe to say it's a mixed bag in terms of uh, their engagement. For another perspective, joining us now on Zoom is Sanjay Bhagat, professor of finance at the University of Colorado Boulder. The professor in a recent Harvard Business Review essay argued that investor activism in ESG companies or environmental, social, and governance-focused companies doesn't make a difference on company behavior. Uh, Sanjay, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's uh, good to be with your show and your audience today. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about how companies in these ESG funds or portfolios are not doing well on the ESG front. Tell us more. Sure, happy to. Let me just uh, briefly, uh, I guess, uh, give another perspective on the previous uh, speaker. So most of Aval and, and his colleagues at, at Yale, they're doing magnificent work. Uh, so in highlighting what the companies in the U.S. have done with regard to uh, disinvesting from Russia. But has that really uh, impacted the Russian war effort? That I mean, so what they're doing is good for the shareholders of, of these U.S. companies. And it also is, you know, uh, sort of has a nice aura about uh, uh, positively impacting human rights and so forth. But is it negatively, is it significantly impacting the Russian war effort negatively? I doubt uh, any, uh, any experts on that will say yes. Now, looking at the economic data on that, the only thing right now that uh, economically that can be done to uh, minimize the Russian war effort, uh, those efforts will have to come from Germany and to a smaller extent Italy that still import vast amounts of oil and natural gas from Russia. Until they stop importing that, the Russian war effort, at least economically, is not going to be hampered. Now to your question about, uh, about uh, ESG and as an investment strategy. So Morningstar, which is a very well-known uh, provider of mutual fund data and information, uh, in uh, 2016 March, uh, they started uh, classifying uh, 
uh, various mutual funds and institutional funds as uh, you know, uh, very high in the ESG sustainable space. They gave them five globes for funds that were sort of the most uh, sustainable or that adhere to the ESG principles most closely. Then you had four globes for a little bit less and one globe for the ones that in their, in, in their uh, uh, database were not uh, very focused on ESG principles. And uh, what some researchers uh, uh, from University of Chicago found is that uh, when Morningstar gives your fund five globe rating, investors uh, flock to your fund with their investment dollars. And conversely, if you get a one globe, investors uh, uh, don't uh, flock. In fact, they remove the investment. So that's all good. The question then uh, that they also looked at is, what is the return performance of these uh, five globe funds and the one globe funds Measuring performance, financial performance, especially over long periods, is uh, not a straightforward business. And on this, I'll caution the previous speaker that talked about uh, various uh, you know, companies did better that on ESG and so forth. Those are not, uh, you have to be careful when you make those statements. Anyways, so this paper I'm talking about uh, that came out in Journal of Finance, done very carefully, so they tried various benchmarks to measure abnormal performance of these five globe, these high sustainability funds and the one globe or the low sustainability funds. And in none of their measures did the five globes on average outperform the one globe fund. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Uh, in some of the measures, the one globe funds, the low sustainability funds outperformed the high uh, sustainability funds, and sometimes these results were statistically significant. Now, this is not just an isolated study. There are also researchers that have looked at uh, uh, the ESG scores uh, and the performance of companies that get high ESG scores. So you have vendors, commercial vendors, uh, that provide ESG scores to, to uh, uh, most public companies across the, the globe, and especially in the U.S. And then you have uh, funds in the U.S. that uh, focus their investment on ESG or highly rated ESG companies and others that are not highly rated ESG. And uh, again, uh, even uh, companies that get a high ESG rating uh, if you go and look at their environmental and labor uh, labor uh, performance records as measured by labor litigation, uh, environmental litigation, companies that seem to get a high ESG rating that people think that investors think may be uh, very adherent to the ESG principles. When you look at the hard data, as, as researchers have, have looked at, the results are quite the opposite that companies that in general that score low on ESG seem to do better in terms of actual performance on labor and environmental issues. Mm. Uh, again, to give you another study, um, this one, uh, so the 
United Nations in 2006, they came out there with the principles for responsible investing, PRI. And as a institutional fund, a mutual fund or a hedge fund, you could sign on to this PRI statement. And uh, researchers then looked at what happens uh, to the uh, ESG performance of, of funds that have signed on to the United Nations PRI principles. You think that uh, funds that are signing on to the PRI principles, which you know, really uh, uh, say things like that we will uh, be cognizant of our uh, companies that we are holding about their uh, practices and adherence to uh, uh, principles having to do with environment, social justice, good governance, etc. But what these researchers found is uh, uh, funds that were signing on to the PRI statements in general, were investing in companies that had, uh, uh, on average, a lower ESG rating. Now, you might say, well, of course, they are investing in companies that are low ESG rated to then uh, 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 encourage these companies to improve their ESG rating. However, uh, research found no such uh, improvement in the ESG, even after these companies uh, signed the PRI statements. So let me so, get uh, Stephen. Let me get Stephen to respond to what you laid out, Professor. Thank you, uh, Stephen. What's your take? Well, Lucy, uh, I think I'll respond on two levels here. Uh, the second level, which Sanjay, uh, you'll be disappointed to know that despite the efforts to provoke a debate here, I actually agree with you on uh, almost all of what you said on ESG. And there's a few points I would want to raise. First is how ESG is being measured and how it's being captured. Uh, in the aftermath of the 2000, you know, Enron and WorldCom and, and Tyco uh, corporate governance scandals, you had this very regrettable race by so-called corporate ge governance experts to try to quantify ESG metrics in very straight, in, in very superficial terms. You have, you know, uh, kind of uh, a questionable benchmarks such as having mandatory retirement age for corporate directors. Uh, you have all kinds of, you know, uh, ambiguous promises by companies on the E front, on the environmental front, to, to pledge whether carbon neutrality or net zero or net neutral, uh, whether it's 20 or 30 years down the road without any substantive action being taken now. So in terms of the metrics that are being used to capture ESG by so many of the funds, including the Morningstar ratings that you you correctly point out, uh, they're flawed metrics in terms of what companies are actually doing in terms of promoting ESG principles. You can make a case that there's significant detachment between ESG as it's tangibly impacted on an everyday basis versus what those metrics are capturing. And it's not surprising to know that financial performance is all over the place and that there's no correlation between those questionable ESG metrics and actual financial performance because they're so detached from what companies are actually doing. And you have all kinds of legitimate questions you can raise about those financial about those financial metrics for measuring ESG. For example, on the S front of ESG for social capital. I mean, I mean, social capital, that was a term used by Alexis de Tocqueville 200 years ago in Democracy in America. It describes this bedrock of community trust that is essential to businesses being able to operate. 
But yet the ESG principles don't do anything to capture that. They don't capture any engagement by companies on voting rights. They don't capture engagement on protecting democracy. They don't capture engagement by companies in terms of getting employees to, uh, to, the, to the polls, in terms of making it easier to vote. None of that is captured by ESG metrics. So I think there's all kinds of problems there that you correctly raised, Sandra, and I agree with you. On the first point that you raised uh, on the economic impact of our work, on that, I do disagree with you. This is not just a symbolic cause. This is not just, you know, uh, virtue signaling or chest pounding about human rights. This is having a very tangible impact on the Russian economy. Our researchers actually went through and we quantified the economic magnitude of lost revenue from the 750 companies that are curtailing operations. And what we found is that they represent $500 billion of lost revenue from Russia alone. That represents 25% of Russian GDP. For all the focus that is correctly on the European energy companies, which are continuing to buy um, oil and natural gas from Russia, and they're making strides in the right direction, not as fast as people would like, but they're making strides there. We have to remember the Russian economy is not a monolith. Russian consumers buy things. There are other sectors besides energy that make up the Russian economy. And by showing the 25% of Russian GDP has been you know, adversely impacted, this is really a huge, huge, huge impact on the Russian economy. It's already putting significant economic pressure on the Putin regime uh, in partnership, in tandem with the devastating, unprecedented sanctions that have been applied by the U.S. government. And it's this economic pressure that represents our best hope for getting Putin to stop this invasion, because ultimately stalling out civil society and exerting economic pressure is the thrust of our strategy. We're not going to be able to send American soldiers to counter Putin on the battlefield. We're not going to be able to, to resort to, to diplomacy in terms of changing Putin's mind. History has shown that does not work. This is the best path forward, and we're really proud of what we've been able to show in terms of 25% of Russian GDP is already off the table. And again, it traces back to the individual consumers, the individual investors who are making their voices heard at the highest levels. I wanted to go back to Sanjay Bhagat before we run out of time. Uh, Professor, when you think about what the takeaway take model is, having um, con considering what you just shared, I mean, what do you think will change behavior of companies and countries? So, um, Again, thank you uh, for allowing me to uh, comment here. Uh, so the U.S. companies uh, uh, disinvesting or curtailing their uh, their operations uh, activities in Russia, that's all very fine. And maybe it does negatively hamper the uh, sort of the uh, lives of some Russians. Uh, but, you know, uh, you sort of am reminded, ironically, of the French general in 1850, the Crimean War, who, who was watching this cavalry charge against these uh, uh, cannons at that time. And his remark was, this is magnificent, but this is not war. So ironically, it's in the same part of the geography there. Uh, U.S. companies withdrawing from there is magnificent, but it's not going to accomplish uh, much, if anything, in uh, uh, negatively impacting the Russian war effort about the only economic leverage that, uh, that we, uh, U.S. companies and the Western countries have is, like I said earlier, 
uh, get Germany and Italy to stop importing oil and uh, energy products. And that's the, the only thing that, that, that that's, will impact Russian uh, war effort economically. You know, the military uh, issues are different. Now, moving, uh, shifting quickly to this other issue about uh, measurements of ESNG is all, is all there. There's those measures that are very controversial. But even when you look at, you know, so you have to ask the question, why are managers in the U.S. so uh, many of them are very, you know, proud to talk about ESG sets of issues. What you find is that, you know, when companies are coming up to their quarterly earnings announcement, if their earnings announcement are going to be below the market's expectations, it's these managers that are more likely to be talking about uh, environment and social justice and so forth. On the other hand, if you have managers whose earnings are above market's expectations, they don't seem to be talking about this. So a lot of this talk uh, that the previous speaker talked about that so many companies are talking about, or so many companies CEOs are talking about ES and G issues, it's mostly a smokescreen for not performing well on the financial measure. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Sanjay Bhagat, we thank you for your perspective. Professor of Finance at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Stephen Tian from Yale School of Management will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to hear from Kate Emery, founder of Reset, a social enterprise trust, as we talk more about ESG investing. This is Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about corporate social responsibility today. Joining us now on Zoom, Kate Emery is founder of the Walker Group and Reset. Kate, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we uh, talked about ESG funds uh, earlier in the show. Uh, the Walker Group is a your socially focused technology company. It distributes a third of its profit to employees, a third to the community, and a third to you, the shareholder. And when we think about how this model uh, started, I understand your son was part of um, the in inspiring you. Can you briefly explain? Well, um, sure. When I started the business, it was, you know, based on my schooling, business school, and and learning that, of course, the metric of success for any company is how much money you're making. And, um, and it was exciting to be growing a business and seeing what I could do to, you know, to, to, to make that bottom line uh, grow. And uh, yet I had this little four-year-old who was big into birds and my husband was big into gardens and Dave was home with him a lot and uh, was always talking about, you know, his expertise and my dad's ex or, and his dad's expertise. And um, at one point when I was heading off to work, I said, so Dave, what am I an expert in? And he looked at me and he said, well, mom, you're an expert at love. And mm -hmm. It just hit me right where it should in the heart. And um, I think that was sort of a turnaround moment in terms of what is this all about and what is my business all about? And I didn't want it to be just about um, the, the, the profits. I grew up in a, 
uh, family that was all about giving back, and I wanted to be able to uh, to do that. And I, it was an epiphany in the driveway there, and it was a further epiphany reading Divine Right of Capital, Marjorie Kelly, a great book that sort of explores what can and should be perhaps different in the in the business models that that we have. And it moved me away from the it's all about and only about the money, which is which is what we're taught in business school uh, and recognizing that it could and should reflect our individual values. And as Stephen said, those are oftentimes not measured, often because they're very hard to measure, but we know it when we see it. And and I love what Stephen was saying and how we're seeing um, the power of people to move companies in a in a different direction. Um, and And realize that what we are moving in that case are these monolithic, you know, they're the huge dinosaurs of business um, that are that are tromping around the world today. And I think what we're also recognizing is that people are waking up to the fact that we need to do something different. We need, we, you know, we've had this reset with COVID. I think we're having a a reset moment in a lot of ways and people are realizing wait a minute it doesn't work to have this singular focus on on profitability we need to focus on other things and i would love to be encouraging more businesses more people who are interested in making a positive difference in the world to to create a business that will will help do that and eventually supplant some of that older uh, mentality of it's it's all about and only about the money. That's a perfect transition to talk about Reset, which you also founded. And so tell me maybe some examples of these socially successful companies that are also financially viable that incubated at Reset. Sure. So we're focused on helping, or at least at this stage, we're focused on helping entrepreneurs um, take their idea and and make it real. So these are very small companies, but you know, give us the length of time that some of these uh, country uh, companies that we're talking about on Stevens list, uh, when they've been around that long, I'm hoping they're gonna they're gonna. Um, rival those companies, but you're talking about everything from, you know, companies like Blue Earth Compost, who is is helping um, helping make the whole compost um, world accessible to uh, to to individual companies and uh, and and people, individual people. You're, you've got companies like Asarazi, which is a company that has uh, managed to take all the evaporate um, purified water that comes from making maple syrup and capture that and make a sparkling water. Uh, you're talking about Ray's Green, which is a company that will enable individuals and and organizations to invest in clean energy in their communities and and work together to create a fund that will do that and mm -hmm. and and many many more so it's a it the the idea of reset is to um to encourage people to start a business that is not just socially responsible you know if you take the whole um uh 
different kinds of business. It used to be you're either for-profit or you're not-for-profit. Um, and one does good and one makes money. And now we've moved from that to socially responsible, where it's the do no harm kind of thing. And we're increasingly moving toward companies that are in that social enterprise model, where they are doing good in any number of ways. Perhaps it's sharing profits like Newman's Own or the Walker Group, or it can be that they are um, hiring people, they do it through their operations, hiring people with barriers to employment. Uh, or it could be the product themselves where they're like Ray's Green, where they're helping people get off um, the, the, the fossil fuel treadmill. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a new kind of business and many of these companies are very young, but I think there's a lot of power behind them. And, and uh, as Stephen was saying, it's a matter of people getting behind those and supporting the com companies that are that are operating that way and um, and perhaps starting something themselves. I love that example of Asarasi, uh, which you mentioned, makes bottled water from wastewater and the maple syrup making process. I understand that the shareholders are pretty passionate too. Asarasi raising nearly five hundred thousand in equity on a public platform, Kate. Yes, yes. And and when you think about it, you know, that came from an idea. He was visiting a, a, a maple sugaring operation and saw the amount of water, uh, learned about the water that's sort of just um, traditionally just evaporate that is in, and being hauled off and not, not used and um, and realize there's an opportunity there. And I think that kind of spark can come to all of us in, in many different ways. Um, and it can be financially uh, successful. Is it, is, it, is it always going to be, you know, in, the, in a one-on-one -on -one thing if you've got a company that that doesn't care about ESG kind of stuff, um, values, human human stuff, the environment, um, are they going to do as well as uh, a company on the opposite end of the spectrum? I don't know. But to me, it's a false, um, you know, it's, it's like saying, okay, what if we were told that a psychopath is really the much more likely person to be successful in the world? Are you going to marry one? Are you going <laughs> to, you know, w w go into business with them? No, because it's not a, it's not a good way to be. It's not, a, it's not healthy and it's not, um, it's, it, we rebel against that kind of lack of humanity. And, and yet we are willing to say that's okay for business because it's all about the bottom line, nothing personal. It's just business. Well, I think people are waking up to the fact that it is personal and mm -hmm. it can be imbued in a business. Oh, thank you so much, Kate, for sharing that with us and the work that, that Reset and Walker Group has done uh, to help, uh, you know, bring more humanity uh, into um, when we think about um, investing and uh, investing in our communities. Uh, Kate Emery, again, founder of the Walker Group and Reset. We appreciate your time today, Kate. Sure, absolutely. And Stephen Tian, you brought the passion this hour, Research Director at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute at the Yale School of Management. Thank you for your time. Sujata Srinivasan produced today's show.